T-minus 15 seconds. T-minus 10, 9, 8, Entering into the 1980s, a few organizations in history had so sterling a reputation as NASA. That all changed in a matter of seconds on January 28, 1986. The Challenger shuttle launch was an historical event in the making. Two years prior, President Ronald Reagan had introduced the Teacher in Space project, a proposal aimed at inspiring students, encouraging educators, and generating interest in the STEM fields by bringing teachers to space. Krista McAuliffe, a high school social studies teacher from New Hampshire, was the very first person awarded a spot. 17% of all Americans tuned in live to watch, many of them classes of school children. And then... Flight controllers here looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. In the aftermath, through investigations and hearings, it was revealed that the Challenger failure was a result not of random occurrence or lack of know-how. It was human oversight. Managers and executives overseeing the operation had failed to take proper precautions regarding a component of the rocket boosters, called O-rings, which engineers had advised were liable to fail under the below freezing temperature of that January day. They decided to push forward despite those warnings, and everybody aboard Challenger died when the aircraft exploded 73 seconds into its flight. We have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. Flight director confirms that. We are looking at uh, checking with the recovery forces to see uh, what can be done at this point. The next spacecraft to take flight after Challenger was called Galileo. No matter what, Galileo was going to be scrutinized. It's like the performer that had to go up on stage after his opening act bombs. Pun not intended. Everything was going to be ten times harder, and it was. Firstly, Galileo needed plutonium because it was headed for Jupiter. Typical rocket fuel suffices for trips to the moon or nearby planets, but Jupiter is 588 million kilometers from Earth. Through its own heat-generating decay, plutonium is not only effective, but highly compact, taking up less space and weight on the craft. For all the sense it made to NASA engineers, however, some American citizens still had the Challenger incident fresh in their minds. The fiery explosion, the falling debris, imagine that, plus radioactive nuclear material raining from the sky. NASA insisted that the flight would be safe, that the likelihood of a radiation leak as a result of another Challenger-like disaster was 1 in 2,700. To those who remember the highest-ranking officials at NASA signing off on Challenger and its safety standard, the claim rang hollow. 
protests formed near the launch site, and anti-nuclear activist groups sued NASA in an attempt to stop Galileo from going up. A hearing in a U.S. district court was scheduled to occur just a few days before the launch. And these roadblocks weren't just a nuisance. If the anti-nuclear groups successfully delayed launch, they could effectively shut down the mission, because Galileo had a deadline. The project had began all the way back in 1977 and was set to launch in 1982. Between development setbacks, rising costs and budget cuts, it got delayed to 1984, then 1986. When Challenger happened, it got pushed back again. The deadline to launch was not only a bureaucratic decision, though. You see, in order to get to Jupiter, NASA's engineers had to get creative. Even an efficient fuel source like plutonium would run out far before reaching such a distance. So they had the idea to use the gravitational pull of planets as a kind of slingshot. Galileo would fly by Venus once and Earth twice, building up a head of steam to then shoot off to Jupiter. The plan was ingenious, but it required very precise conditions to line everything up just right such that the trajectory of the spacecraft would align perfectly with the orbit of all three planets. It meant that Galileo had to be in air by latest November 19, 1989. If it missed that date, it would have to wait at least another 19 months. Nine months and likely over a hundred million dollars in expense for a project already 12 years in the making and over one billion dollars over budget. There was no guarantee that Galileo would ever fly if not now. This, as protests heated up, the court battle drew nearer, press started asking questions and rain poured down in East Florida. NASA's employees were already sitting at their desks thinking what else could possibly go wrong. You know what happens next. In part one of this double episode, I told you about the wankworm, how it spread through NASA, the US Department of Energy, and other organizations throughout the Western world how two system managers developed a program to beat the worm, how the hacker came back with an even stronger version, and how a Frenchman built the program that defeated it once and for all. That, it turns out, was only part of the story. When Wankworm infected a computer, it would set a system announcement message to read, quote, Wank, worms against nuclear killers. And then underneath, you have been officially wanked. You talk of times of peace for all, and then prepare for war. It was an utterly confusing message, even if you do know what the terms worm and wank means, which you can bet many NASA employees in 1989 did not. Nonsensical it may have seemed, the message was packed with references, clues to the possible identity and motives of the individual or individuals who wrote it. Let's start with the obvious. Perhaps you know what the slang term wank means, if you don't Google it. 
The use of that term would seem to indicate two things. First, that the worm's author might come from a country where that term is common, specifically of or related to the United Kingdom. Second, that they're rather immature. If one were to guess, young and male. Of course, young and male, when we're talking about hackers, doesn't narrow things down much. It's hard to imagine anything short of a large official organization, maybe a government or a crime ring, hacking into NASA. But plenty of evidence suggested this might have just been some misbehaving kid. The inane little messages it sent to network computers, how it first reached the Department of Energy on Friday the 13th, and that no component of the wankworm actually stole or purposefully manipulated data on its host computer systems or benefited the hacker in any material way. Other clues were rather subject to interpretation, like the structure of the code itself, which was utterly chaotic. In Underground by Silette Dreyfus and Julian Assange, NASA system manager John McMahon compared trying to understand the wankworm to trying to sift through spaghetti. Everything tangled together without logic or order. Could this mean that there were multiple authors who weren't well-coordinated? Or one who simply did not have an eye for organization? And there were multiple versions of the first wankworm, but no obvious reason why. DOE network manager Kevin Oberman concluded that it must be a function of the program's learning and changing as it went along and infected more systems. McMahon had a different theory, that the hacker released the worm, then made changes to it and released updated versions as they went along. While the two men debated, Digital Equipment Corporation, the company that made all the infected computers, was dealing with their own unique version of Wankworm. Their worm had instructions to infect as many computers running over EasyNet, the company's internal network, as possible, except those located inside DEX Area 48. What was Area 48? We'll come back to that. Wankworm cost a lot of people a lot of time, effort, stress, and money. McMahon, Oberman, and Deck, themselves more embarrassed than anyone, were out for scalps. John had even printed Wankworm out on white paper, seven pages total. They poured through every inch of the program, but no amount of analysis was going to get the job done because there was only one person on the case with the knowledge to blow it wide open. And it was not John, nor Kevin, but a journalist. The first wankworm ran as a process called netw underscore. Recall in our last episode that the worm would check to see if itself, netw underscore, was already running on a computer before infecting that computer. Oberman's anti-wank took advantage of this feature by running a process also named netw underscore on an uninfected computer so as to confuse the worm into deleting itself. The second wankworm, as a result, was given a different name, Oil Z. Everything about the wankworm was confusing, so few people gave thought to what Oil Z may have stood for except one journalist covering the story, Silette Dreyfus. 
Dreyfus may not have known as much about how to defeat a worm as John McMahon or Kevin Oberman, but she did have one incidental advantage, her nationality. Immediately she knew what Oil Z meant, so she went home and rummaged through her CD collection and boom! You talk of time of peace for all and then prepare for war. Zero minutes, 26 seconds. Blossom and Blood by the Australian rock band Midnight Oil, also referred to by their fans as Oils, Oil Z. Malicious Life is sponsored by CyberReason, a cybersecurity company. If you're into cybersecurity, and since you're listening to our show, there's a good chance you are, I don't think I need to tell you about the problem of logs. We've all had that experience. Something's off in the network. Perhaps something malicious is going on. So you grab the logs and start browsing around for signs of foul play. But even a one megabyte log file is roughly 500 pages of text or a good-sized book. It's the classic needle-in-the-haystack problem. What you need is a system that can not only detect threats in the network, but also screen false positives and show you the important stuff. In other words, what you need is a system that gives you a story. Jeffrey Wright, a cybersecurity manager at RTI Surgical, knows exactly what I'm talking about. I'm Jeff Wright. I'm at RTI Surgical. We are a medical device company. We actually manufacture medical devices. I am the primary person responsible for security at RTI. I've been in the game since the 90s, since dial-up modems. It's great to be technical and it's great to be, great to be log-driven, but when you start trying to talk to someone that doesn't understand security at all, all they really want is a story. They, you know, It's all about visual aids. But we didn't have anything that really was piping on the whole concept of ransomware, ransomware, ransomware. And I felt that CyberReason did that for me. It added a layer of security that we just didn't have. It added that visibility to the endpoints when they're not in the office, which was a big deal for me. I was very impressed with not only the product, but the biggest thing for me was, as someone who likes the red team, I was like, who better to protect the environment? Someone actually has a history on attacking. Now we have that visibility into the endpoints. So not only do we know that, oh, I have a problem, but now CyberReason allows us to see the how, the why, and the when. CyberReason's deep hunting engine gives you deep visibility into endpoints. It automatically extracts statistical and behavioral analytics at a rate of 8 million queries per second on the data collected. CyberReason's technology can surface malicious operations without you writing a single rule. No more alert fatigue, no more huge log files. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Networking technology didn't hit Australia's market until the mid-90s, but already by the late 80s, Australians were famous in the worldwide hacking underground. That fame rested largely on the reputation of one hacking collective, The Realm, and its two most revered members, codenamed Phoenix and Electron. Phoenix and Electron were digital assassins, breaching major companies, universities, governments, just for the game of it. They were so good, in fact, that John Markoff, a reporter for the New York Times, published a story in March of 1990 about a new computer worm sweeping through U.S. institutions. 
Shortly thereafter, Markov received a call from a man calling himself Dave. Dave was angry because he wanted credit. There was no worm. All those intrusions were him. It only looked like a worm because he was so good. He was breaking into so many networks so quickly that Markov mistook the breaches as machine-made. Dave was a fake name. This was Phoenix, real name Nashon Evan Haim. His call to John Markov was brash, and if he could have seen into the future, the series of events precipitated by his actions, he likely wouldn't have picked up that phone and wouldn't have hacked all those universities. But he did, and he did. And you can understand why. He may have already, alongside Electron and other members of the realm, hacked major universities, corporations, and governments, but he was only 18 years old. 18-year-old boys like to brag. And Phoenix was especially hot-headed. Having grown up in a broken home, you could say he walked around with a chip on his shoulder, breaking into networks seemingly just so that he could boast about his accomplishments to other hackers online. Electron, too, found hacking when his family life spiraled out of control. His mother died when he was just a child, and his father, the first who introduced him to computers, developed cancer not long after. In 2003, inspired by Sulet Dreyfus's Underground, a documentary was made about Electron and Phoenix called In the Realm of the Hackers. In it, Electron, real name Richard Jones, recalls learning about his father's bowel cancer. Quote, I can specifically remember thinking computers don't get cancer, end quote. According to his own account, as the authority figures in his life passed away, he turned ever more obsessively to computers. So Phoenix and Electron were not so scary, but online they were. Despite not actually ever having met or shared their real names, they partnered up. Phoenix the aggressor with an expensive Commodore Amiga computer and its fastest modem speed, and Electron more reserved, more talented, but working on a slower Commodore 64 and its 1541 disk drive. Other prominent members of the group included Force, a kind of elder statesman of the group, and Nam, real name David John Woodcock. For years, they operated over dial-up connections through the University of Melbourne's limited internet connection. With primitive machines, they were nonetheless able to crack universities from Wisconsin to Berkeley to Purdue. Individual university professors who wrote negatively of hackers, like Eugene Spafford, a previous guest of our show. They stole, but did not use or sell, thousands of credit cards from Citibank. They cracked the U.S. Department of Defense, NASA. Electron and Phoenix were hacking NASA while their classmates were taking driver's ed. And for a while, it worked. Until one journalist discovered a reference to a rock band in a computer worm. And another received a call from someone claiming to have reached university across the United States. No longer were these Australians a fringe issue. Something had to be done.
Phoenix and Electron now had a price on their heads. They were placed on a wanted list. The collective effort by Australian Federal Police to capture and indict Phoenix and Electron was given the decidingly non-intimidating name, Operation Dabble. Operation Dabble commenced in 1988. It would have begun even sooner, but Australian authorities initially faced a roadblock. There was not yet any law in Australia which addressed crimes committed via computers. In order to begin investigating, the Australian government first had to actually write legislation to define the terms of cybercrime. They passed a bill in June 1988, and by the end of the year, using informants and undercover agents, police had identified their targets. It's possible, even at this point, that Phoenix and Electron weren't seen as much of an imminent threat. A year after identifying Nashon Evan Haim and Richard Jones, little significant investigative action had commenced toward actually pursuing the two boys. Who knows, they might have even got off free had they slowed down what they were doing. But Phoenix and Electron weren't just occasional hackers. They were obsessive, constantly improving, becoming more dangerous and proliferate across the world. In October of 98, a worm spread through NASA headquarters on the same day of a scheduled launch, and it seemed to have ties to Australia. Hack after hack continued in the following months. Phoenix and Electron were building the walls to their own prison. They forced their government's hand. In January of 1990, Australian police obtained warrant to tap all of Phoenix's communications. For the following two months, they listened in to every call going in and out of his home. Their job was made easy by how often he flaunted his achievements. They heard him gloat about, quote, fucking with NASA. Yeah, they gonna really want me bad, he said. This is fun. He bragged about the universities, too. Quote, the guys down at the local universities here are screaming with rage because they couldn't get rid of us. The Americans are getting pretty damn pissed off with me because I'm doing so much and they can't do much about it. I'm getting to the point where I can get into almost any system on the Internet. I've virtually raped the Internet beyond belief. End quote. Incriminating as those words were, the missing piece of evidence was the computer code itself. Police needed a means for capturing the data from Phoenix and Electron's systems, or else all those phone conversations could be contested in court. No technology existed yet, however, for capturing data at such speeds as they needed to. So investigators needed to literally invent a system for intercepting the data, and they had a ticking timer to do so. Because just as they were doing so, Phoenix and Electron had achieved their greatest and most dangerous breach yet. Zardos was a mailing list between 1989 and 1991, which kept record of every known vulnerability in computer systems of the time detailing where to find them and how they could be exploited. 
You can imagine how precious Zardos was then to hackers and security experts alike. It was a hacker's cheat code to the internet. And after breaking into CSIRO, an Australian research institute, Electron got his hands on it. He shared it with Phoenix. You could argue at this point that temporarily Phoenix and Electron were the two most powerful hackers on Earth. Even more frightening a prospect would be if Zardos made its way from the Australians out to other hackers. The effect of that would be difficult even to imagine. Coincidentally, however, the very same day Electron cracked Zardos, Australia's federal police made a breakthrough, implementing a communications intercept with high enough modem speeds to intercept all data entering and exiting from the computers of Phoenix and Electron. This would mark the first ever case in Australia, as well as the rest of the world, where police effectively gathered criminal evidence via remote tapping of computers. By the end of March 1990, the police finished their wiretaps, which meant that there was only one thing left to do. Richard Jones was peeing in the middle of the night when police broke into his home, held him down and put him in handcuffs. At the same time, in two other locations in the Australia suburbs, police were arresting David John Woodcock and Nashon Evan Hain. In 1993, Jones was given six months of jail time and 300 hours of community service. Evan Haim, 12 months, 500 hours. Some argued for greater sentences than that. Perhaps the judges took pity on the boys. After all, they were so young at the time. Observers noted that at their own son's court hearings, Phoenix's parents were outwardly fighting with one another. Electron, in awaiting his case, experienced the death of his father and drug addiction, culminating in a mental breakdown which required hospitalization. While Nashon and Richard both admitted to hacking into NASA, among many other targets, to this day we have no definitive proof that they were the creators of the wankworm. Electron has outwardly denied it. They're really the only two suspects, the names that come up again and again in historical accounts, but nobody was able to produce that smoking gun. It probably wouldn't have mattered in the end, considering how many other breaches they've been found guilty for. Even if they did do it, that still doesn't explain all those questions we left open earlier. Worms against nuclear killers? Zone 48? Wankworm is remembered today, actually, not because of Phoenix Electron or for what it actually did to NASA. Its legacy is, in a way, more interesting than any of that. DECnet's Zone 48 represents the nation of New Zealand. A member of John McMahon's team, mulling over the matter, recalled that New Zealand is a famously nuclear-free country. Just as the plutonium-fueled Galileo spacecraft was going to make its way up into space, an Australian hacker 
or two sent a computer worm onto NASA's SPAN network with a message. Programmed into the worm was a command that it could go anywhere except New Zealand, because they'd already got that message. And now that we've finished this two-part episode on the wankworm, I'd like to take a second to tell you where the word worm actually comes from. Because many people, in looking back at this story, have noticed parallels to the book that coined the term. The shockwave writer was a tepidly received but cult classic science fiction novel published in 1975, written by John Bruner. It tells the story of Nick Hafflinger, a programmer living in a dystopian, technocratic 21st century United States who manages to escape the government's program for training gifted individuals towards furthering state interests. This America is dominated by networks, with a ruling class that uses it towards its own ends as a tool of control. That is, until Nick creates a worm, which, when activated, reveals all the government's secrets to the people. As the novel comes to an end, Nick's final saving act is to stop a government-ordered nuclear strike. A computer worm designed to shine a light on the government's activity and prevent its nuclear activity. Wankworm wasn't just an effective malware. It was the first malware program to carry with it a statement of intent. Software like DCSS, created a decade later, and cyber destroyers like Shamoon, another decade after that, can all be traced back in some small but meaningful way to the wankworm, which demonstrated that computer programs can do more than execute actions. They can communicate ideas. That's it for this episode. Stay with us for the last segment of our show, Malware Exploder, a conversation with a cyber reason researcher who will share with us an interesting malware. Malicious Life is available on CastBox, the most advanced and feature-rich podcast listening app out there. Find it on Android, iOS, CarPlay, and Android Auto. You can find me at at ranlevy, R-A-N-L-E-V-I, on Twitter. Ran at ranlevy.com is the email address. And you can also follow at malicious.life for future updates and new episodes. All past episodes and full transcripts are available on our website, malicious.life. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to Cyberism for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberism.com. And now... Malware Exploder. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to our Malware Exploder segment of our show where we talk with Cyber Reasons researchers about some of their latest findings and try to dig deep into the malware they analyze to understand trends and techniques in the cybersecurity world. And today we have Noah Pinkas. Hi, Noah. Hi, Ron. You're an EMEA. SOC manager, so let me break up this long title. EMEA, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. SOC is Global Security Operations Center, and you're the manager of that team. So thank you for being with us today, and we're here to discuss a very, very sophisticated attack named 
Imotet. So, first thing first, describe for us in general terms the outline of the Imotet triple attack. Okay, so I will say that it's a sophisticated attack that used the Imotet banking Trojan. Um, the sophisticated part is that there was a use of this specific banking Trojan to deliver additional malwares in order to ransom at the end. It's starting from a phishing campaign uh, using email, a spare phishing campaign uh, that downloaded the Imotet uh, malware using PowerShell. Uh, follow that, the Imotet uh, communicate with the command and control server in order to download the TrickBot, uh, which is also banking Trojan malware, but is a more sophisticated malware um, with additional modules that able also to steal sensitive information, to track specific important machine uh, over organization, also communicate with the command and control, um, deliver the Empire PowerShell, and all in the end, in order to find the targeted um, and strategic uh, assets in organization to deliver the ransom, uh, which is named Ryuk. So that's why we called it a triple attack. It's actually a combination of, uh, we said, imitate at the beginning, then trick bot, uh, which also delivers uh, what what is called an empire attack. We'll talk about this in a bit. And then the, the REOC uh, tr- ransomware. So right. that's a very sophisticated chain of events. Mm-hmm. So f- the first question that came into my mind is why use such a sophisticated chain of m- different malware? I mean, we see most of the other malwares using maybe a dropper and um, the main body of the attack. Here we've got a chain of several, I mean, one malware calls the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one. Why do that? So first, they already have some malware, so they not necessarily need to create their tools. They can already use a malware. Off-the-shelf malware. Yeah, exactly. Or off-the-shelf, or already use the victim. So I know that... I have a list that I can maybe steal or uh, take uh, control of command and control server of another malware and infect with my malware now. So I already have... That's an internal fight between malware authors. Yes, Yes. exactly. Um, And what are the disadvantages? I mean, if I'm... Let's try to, to, to get inside the malware author's head. If I'm using so many different mal... different types of malwares, what am I paying? I mean, what's the price I have to pay? I have to know how the other malware uh, work. So I need to coordinate between my uh, malwares and the other malware that I'm using. Uh, Also, if I'm depending on other um, attacker command and control servers or tool, he might change them, he might um, shut them down, and then my operation... Is at uh, risk. Yes. So the malware author in this case is probably a sophisticated professional, I'm guessing. It's someone with lots of knowledge. Yes. Probably. Interesting. And in this attack, we see heavy usage of PowerShell. Now, PowerShell, if, if you're not familiar, some of our listeners might not be familiar, is a kind of, let's say, a command line interface for Windows computers. But why is it so useful for attackers? Okay, so PowerShell, as you mentioned, is automated and configuration management framework. Um, it's existing and default installed on every um, um, Windows OS 7 and above. Um, so the attacker already have his tool on the machine. He don't need to um, weaponize himself. He already have everything he need. 
And another nice thing that PowerShell had is uh, interaction with the Windows 32 APIs. So basically, an attacker can do a lot of things and interact with the OS system. Uh, and that's something that it wasn't feasible in, in the old command prompt that we had in older versions. And we still do have them in even newer versions of Windows. Is it less? I mean, is the command prompt less powerful than PowerShell? Um, yeah, it's less powerful. And we are seeing a use of uh, the command prompt to use PowerShell uh, most of the time. And also another nice thing that attackers love in the PowerShell is the ability to execute code and arbitrary code in memory. So basically this way you also evading detection by all kind of uh, antiviruses and other tools that usually detect based on logs and based on processes that happen. And, this and, is in the memory. And this is a capability granted by PowerShell? That's something that PowerShell can give the attacker? Uh, yes. It's executing uh, yes. memory, in, inside memory. Right. Yeah. Okay. So another interesting thing, another interesting feature is that TrickBot, which is the second uh, link in the chain of, in, of the triple attack, installs a, installs a framework called Empire, which is used uh, in this case for reconnaissance and installing a backdoor in the, in the attacked computer. I'm ha- I have to say that I was not familiar with Empire prior to, that, to our talk. So what's Empire? So Empire is a PowerShell and also Python now uh, post-exploitation framework. It's based on both. Um, and it's enabled the attacker to use all kind of uh, arbitrary code or tools, for example, Keylogger, Mimikat, um, all kind of evasion uh, in the network and in memory uh, that allows the attacker to execute his malicious things. It's tools with all this capability already that is based on PowerShell and enable to execute this thing without um, executing the PowerShell agent. So this way, it's also used the PowerShell, which we already spoke, that is really important and have great um, capabilities. And also, it's not used PowerShell, so if you try to monitor the PowerShell process, you won't see that. So Empire is a framework that was developed for security professionals or for malware authors? Who's the, let's say, intended audience of Empire? Um, so it's more for the security and defensive side. Uh, like Metasploit. Yeah, exactly. You might be familiar with Metasploit, our listeners. Exactly. But as we see, um, whenever there is a pity or a post-exploitation tool that is aimed for the dev- defensive side, always the attacker will use it. Does that framework include any any kind of tools or verification steps to perhaps help prevent such abuse of the tool? Um, no. Uh, it's a double-bladed sword mm-hmm. is best. Uh, okay, thank you very much, Noah. It's been very interesting, especially, I think, for users who might be interested in learning more about PowerShell, which, from what I'm seeing, is getting to be a, a more prominent vector of attacks each each passing year. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you.